All right, we are back. I want to draw your attention to a couple of articles, one in the New York Times, one in the New Yorker, about the billionaires who are waging a war against President Obama. We've been puzzled by the Tea Party phenomenon in this program because while I'm sympathetic to some of the ideas presented by these folks, some of them, I've been intrigued at how well organized these things appear to be. They're popping up, quote, spontaneously, unquote, all over the place. We've suspected there's some heavy hitters behind this AstroTurf-type grassroots movement. It turns out they've apparently been fingered. article by Jane Meyer in The New Yorker reveals that it appears that uh, the Koch brothers, David and Charles, along with Rupert Murdoch, as cited by Frank Rich's article in The New York Times, are the guys throwing a lot of money at the Tea Party movement. There are other major sponsors besides Rupert Murdoch and the Koch brothers. There's uh, Dick Army's Freedom Works, which it turns out, uh, under its original name, Citizens for a Sound Economy, got $12 million seed money from the Koch family. But uh, Koch Industries is, par- is apparently the second largest corporation in America that's privately held. Began with oil in the 1930s and now also, uh, sp- also has an array of industrial products from Dixie Cups to Lycra. I'm somewhat chagrined and shocked to realize that I actually voted for David Koch for vice president back in 1980 when he ran on a libertarian ticket. When I say voted for vice president, of course, we vote for a ticket, do we not, in America, ever since the, uh, the 12th Amendment? Ed Clark was a libertarian candidate for president. He polled 1% of the vote in 1980. was no factor. David Koch decided that throwing a lot of money at, uh, at being a candidate was not the way to get ahead. So instead... He and his brother Charles began founding think tanks and giving him lots of dough to do some thinking with. And not surprisingly, the things they kept thinking about was how we need less government involvement in all of our lives. That broad mandate, as time went on, got focused more and more on how we should get the government out of regulating industries. Jane Meyer's article notes that in recent decades, members of several industrial dynasties have spent parts of their fortunes on a conservative agenda. In the 1980s, the Olin family, which owns a chemical and manufacturing conglomerate, became known for funding right-leaning think tanks, particularly in academia and particularly in law schools. During the 1990s, of course, Richard Mellon Scafey, a descendant of Andrew Mellon, spent millions in an attempt to discredit President Bill Clinton. Oh, he's been no slouch with Obama either. But yeah, you've heard of the Cato Institute? Well, 1977, the Kochs founded the funds to launch that one. Today, the Cato Institute has more than 100 full-time employees, and its experts and policy papers are widely quoted and respected by the mainstream media. It describes itself as nonpartisan, and its scholars have at times been critical of both parties, but it has consistently pushed for corporate tax cuts, reductions in social services, and laissez-faire environmental policies. Cato scholars have been particularly energetic in promoting the climate gate, so-called climate gate scandal. Ed Crane, the Cato Institute's founder and president, told Jane Meyer that the global warming theories give the government more control of the economy. And the article documents what we talked about on this program before. Major industries are using the, uh, the playbook of the tobacco companies to sp- generate doubts. Mentions a 2002 memo from Republican political consultant Frank Luntz, who wrote that so long as, quote, voters believe there's no consensus about global warming within the scientific community, unquote, the status quo would prevail. The Kochs have founded many other sources of environmental skepticism, like the Heritage Foundation, which has argued that scientific facts gathered in the past 10 years do not support the notion of catastrophic human-made warming. 
This is the sort of stuff that has me backing away from so-called libertarianism a bit. Well, maybe more than a bit. What's most interesting about the article to me is the fact that uh, the Koch brothers run <laughs> their organizations with an iron hand. They apparently expect to get the results out of these think tanks that they're funding, by God. I guess the motto is, if I'm paying you to think, you better think like me. Anyway, interesting pieces by Jane Meyer and Frank Rich. I highly recommend them, and we'll probably refer to them again in the next couple of weeks because uh, we don't have that much time to detail some of the stuff that's in there, and there's quite a bit. But the punchline seems to be that the Tea Partiers popping up all over the place have some pretty good funding behind them. All right, let's close with a few medical and science items. Sacramento Bee Medical Column, Inside Medicine by Dr. Michael Wilkes, had an interesting comment in there last week. Dr. Wilkes was talking about a 28-year-old patient he had who was diabetic, who he came to realize couldn't follow the instructions given him because he was completely illiterate. Apparently he was totally fluent in English, but couldn't read or write, and that included numbers. Wilkes noted that I can't remember a time when a doctor or other healthcare provider even thought to ask a routine question to determine a person's reading ability. Well, maybe not, but he pointed out in the article that when, uh, he, when he asked the patient, he denied that he couldn't read and only admitted to it later when they were one-on-one. What struck me in the article was the fact that he graduated high school but couldn't read. Couldn't read, couldn't do numbers, graduates high school. So what does a high school graduate certificate mean these days? That you warmed the bench for this, the allotted number of hours? You know, it's a pretty bad sign if they hand you a diploma and you can't read it. And, and how would you know whether you were driving within the speed limit? Good God. All right, I got a kick out of this uh, question that was asked of New Scientist uh, a couple weeks back about whether plants can cause human diseases. The best answer came from Eric Kavalin. New Scientist puts these questions out sometimes and takes the best answers and publishes them. Eric Kavalin said, Plants do cause disease. Think about allergies to plants such as poison ivy or products such as peanuts. But these are not infectious diseases. Plants do not become pathogens inside us as they need light for photosynthesis, which they can't get inside our bodies. But uh, Christopher Payne noted to the magazine that there is a case widely blogged about of a man with a small fir tree growing in his lungs. He apparently was cutting pine trees when he inhaled the seeds of a cone, which settled in his lung. As soon as his body started to form cysts around the young sapling, doctors feared it was cancerous, so they opted to remove it, whereupon they found the sapling. I think sprout is probably a better word, but I don't think you could have decorated this thing like a Christmas tree. But anyway, yeah. Fungi, protozoans, bacteria, just about everything else causes disease, but not plants. And we mentioned uh, some time back about uh, fever and treating fever and how that might be a mixed blessing. should note that last week I had a horrible headache, probably from a virus and was feeling a bit feverish. Yes, I took Motrin because I felt like there was an axe splitting my head apart and that helped a little bit. As a consequence, it seemed to have knocked my temperature down a little. But that made me feel better. So yes, that is a reason to use an antipyretic. These include aspirin, Motrin, Tylenol, and more. But a man named Heinz-Uwe Holbom from the University of Applied Sciences in Geisenfriedberg wrote the magazine to say, I was extremely interested in your discussion of the effects of fever. 
While working in Germany on a cancer project at the University of Bremen, I stumbled on a 1951 paper by Lewis Diamond and Leonard Luby on spontaneous remission in childhood leukemia. They noted that a feverish infection preceded remission in 21 out of 26 children they studied. He wrote, I remember jumping up from my chair thinking this cannot be happenstance. I investigated many publications on spontaneous regression from cancer. Many, if not a majority of cases, were preceded by a feverish infection. See my 2005 paper in the British Journal of Cancer. Today, we know that bacterial and viral chemicals such as lipopolysaccharides, which, which are strong inducers of fever, are needed to activate innate immune system, the body's initial immune response, which defends against pathogens in a general way without conferring immunity, and that this activation is needed to trigger a full-blown T-cell response against cancer cells. Yet, when I present these findings at medical circles, the reaction is blunt mistrust. Example, at a recent conference on innate immunity, I listened to a talk that revealed that many more patients survive sepsis, a whole body inflammatory response, if they develop fever. I asked whether it might be worth considering inducing fever in high-risk patients. I received a brief response. No. And that's something that warrants uh, some further investigation, to be sure. All right, we're down to our last minute, so I don't have time to talk about uh, Norman Lloyd. Mr. Lloyd is, I believe, 96 years of age. He's still a working actor. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we saw him, uh, I saw him do a radio uh, presentation last year. We're going to try and get him as a guest for this program. Based on Will Durst's recommendation, I rented Me and Orson Welles some time back. Blown away by Christian McKay's portrayal of the great Orson Welles. But found myself wondering if he was really like that. One of the characters in the movie, which is set in 1937, is Norman Lloyd. So I thought, what better way to explore that than trying to get him on this program and ask him. And that's a work in progress. We'll see, we'll see how far we get with it. But alas, we're out of time. We'll talk more about, uh, I think, uh, uh, Orson Welles and me and some other movies seen lately with uh, some of our cinema fans in the not-too-distant future. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We want to thank our good pal Will Durst for chiming in. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We will see you next week at the same time. Baguettes. Et maintenant le voyage à la supermarché. Pomme la mousse, ananas, jus d'orange, bœuf, soupe de jour, camembert, Jacques Cousteau, baguette. Oh. Bonjour. 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 Bonjour, monsieur. Bonjour, mon petit perrot de chien. Ça va? Ça va, ça va? Ça va. Voilà le dans le parc. Où est le livre À la bibliothèque. Et la musique danse À la discothèque. Et les discothèques C'est ici, bébé. Euh...